Welcome to this episode of the Agile for Agilist podcast. I am your host, Brad Nelson, and with me as always is Drew Podwell. Hello, hello, hello. And I'm pretty excited for our guest today. He's one of my favorite people in the world, Dom Michalik. We used to work together. He is an avid, avid learner, someone that I try to keep up with and fail. Uh, and he's going <laughs> to join us today to talk about behavioral design. Say hi, Dom. Hey, what's up, everyone? Brad, I didn't realize I was one of your favorite people. That's it's quite an honor, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, well, that's what the <laughs> podcast is about. Yeah, Sending sure. some love to everyone. So uh, let's do a little bit of an intro from you, Dom. Why don't you tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, name is obviously Dom Michalik. Right now, professionally, I work as a product coach with a company called Pathfinder Product here in Columbus, Ohio. We're actually based out of Grandview. Uh, and as Brad alluded to, I've been studying and practicing behavior design now for a little over, at this point, three, four years formally, uh, which has been great. Really enjoy the topic, really uh, love introducing it to teams and seeing the effects that it could have on a team very quickly uh, and in short order. So I'm super passionate about the topic. I think it is so applicable to not only what I do, but what other folks do in their professions, but based upon what, you know, the habits they want to build or the new behaviors that they want to adopt. It's a pretty exciting topic. Awesome. It, and so you've mentioned habits, but what exactly is behavior design? Uh, behavior design is essentially a practice of designing favorable behaviors that you want to adopt. So to put it in the terms that Dr. BJ Fogg who created behavior design, it's all about really a couple things. Helping people or yourself do the things you already want to do and helping other people or yourself feel the success of doing those things so they become habitual in nature and easier to do as time goes on. Those are his three key maxims behind the idea of behavior design. Awesome. And my understanding is that this is what social media uses when we <laughs> complain about social media being addictive. They use this in what we might call a negative way. Sure. Sure. Yeah. No, I mean, I think the, the reason why I even got into behavior design was because I wanted to learn why these habits or why these products were so habit forming and so deductive of our own attention. It was just a really fascinating topic for me, especially as someone who works in product. Not that I wanted to learn how to do it for product, but I want to learn why it was so effective. And I would like to say, as of recently, I've seen more and more examples of companies using behavior design for good. There is, not to, not a promo, but there is a company here in town in Columbus called Ant Health, which has worked with Dr. BJ Fogg and learning his models and methods for behavior design to help people reduce instances of, of migraines. And I think that's just a really cool way of applying his concepts for good, uh, as opposed to maybe the more scandalous and more famous approaches to creating habit-forming products. So what are some of the products for you that have become habitual? Uh, for better or worse, good question, Drew, thank you. Uh, for better or worse, habitual products that I use, they all kind of have one key theme in common. And that is they are really, really good at prompting me to use their products at the right time. I think the most famous one, uh, especially since 2020 is Slack, right? Slack does a great job of prompting me to interact with Slack. 
Um, and it's become habitual. Quite honestly, at this point, whenever I fire up my computer in the morning, Slack automatically opens and I get the dings, I get the notifications. So like I said, for better or worse, Slack is one of those products. Another habitual product or another product I use habitually is my phone, right? For all the different apps that I could possibly have on my phone, my phone does a really, really good job of prompting me to interact with it on a day-to-day basis. So I would say between all the products, Slack and the iPhone are probably, again, for better or worse, are probably the most habitual products I use on a day-in, day-out basis. And so which ones do you appreciate the most, right? Like, I feel like there's, I, I know for me, for instance, there's there's some notifications that I get that just annoy me. And at some point, I'm going to figure out how to dial them in. And I will, at some point, figure out how to dial them and to get them to the right levels or whatnot. Mm-hmm. But w- which are some of the ones that you feel like hook you at the right time and get you in the right way? Yeah, that's a great question. I think about it in terms of what I have agency versus what the technology or the product has agency and getting me to do something in a particular instance. So I'll give you an example of a product that I love to use, helps me do what I already want to do, and in a way has been a product that I habitually use on a day in and day out basis. And that's my coffee maker. Now my coffee maker does not prompt me to use it, but I've created and designed the space in which I interact with my coffee maker to make it habitual in use. So to give you an example, like I have this habit in the morning. The moment my feet hit the floor in the kitchen, I will go and turn on my coffee maker and it'll brew me a cup of coffee. And because I was thinking about this for this podcast, it's hard for me to like think about it in that way anymore because it's just been so habitual. I, I do it automatically, but nonetheless, I've designed my environment and I have prompted myself to use this product in a way by using an existing behavior, like me walking into the kitchen in the morning to prompt me to use that coffee maker. So to answer your question, I love my coffee maker and I use it habitually. And it uh, (laughs) helps me do the things that I already want to do, which is get a cup of coffee in the morning. I definitely agree with that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, one of the things I've noticed recently is especially, I just turned 48 Monday. You know, I'm getting up early sometimes, right? There's sometimes I get up in the morning to use the bathroom. I check my phone and then sometimes I go back to sleep and then sometimes I start my day. But I feel like my phone and the apps on my phone kind of know when I'm just checking my phone and I'm going to go back to bed mm-hmm. and when I'm checking my phone and I'm up, right? Because there's there's that delay after I start like checking email and checking Reddit and checking LinkedIn. Yeah. And then usually after like a certain sequence of things, my phone's like, all right, Drew's up for the day, you know? And that's when all the alerts like start coming in. And I, I've noticed that definitely dialing in, right? Which is really wild and a little bit scary, you know, that it knows that about me. And I appreciate that, you know? Do you have an iPhone too, Drew? I do have an iPhone, yes. I've worked in mobile apps for a while, so I'm a... Like it's changed since then, but I know that the different operating systems act differently. And Apple is much bigger on trying to decide when you're busy and when you're not. Yeah. But the newest release of Ventura on OS X, there's a setting that allows me to select that. Like when I'm using certain apps, it'll change the notifications, not just whether or not 
I can be contacted or not, or I'm going to get notifications or not. But when I'm using certain apps, I can set it to certain other apps are silenced and other apps aren't silenced. Or I can have different user groups where if I'm using a certain app, then you know my family can still reach me. Yeah. And I've been using that for the podcast as well. I have a a focus setting on Ventura now that's called podcast that that just shuts everybody out. Yeah, you're you're reducing the prompts. It's funny you bring that up, Drew, because uh, Brad, you, you you and I we went to Product Camp Pittsburgh last year, and I use this example with a with the phone to drive home the fact that there's only really three key main variables that drive every single human behavior out there. So I asked everyone in the crowd, I was like, hey, you know, think about the last time you received a phone call or a text message and you didn't answer it right away. I want you to write down all the reasons why you didn't answer that text or that phone call. And so I gave everyone time to do that and blah, blah, blah whatever. And then, and then I stopped everyone. I said, okay, I want you to raise your left hand if you wrote down a reason or multiple reasons around the fact that you saw who was calling you, maybe it was your father-in-law, mother-in-law, someone, a phone number that you didn't recognize and you weren't motivated to actually answer because you just knew it was going to be an awful conversation. And everyone put their left hand up. And I said, okay, now hold up your right hand. If the reason why you didn't answer the phone call or the text message is because your phone, you just weren't able to, it was too hard to answer the phone call. Maybe you were running on a treadmill you were carrying in a bag of groceries and you couldn't get to your phone. Whatever the reason is, it was just too hard to answer the text or the, or the phone call. And the vast majority of people put the right hand up. And I said, okay, now put your two hands together if the reason why you didn't answer the phone call or the text message is because you didn't hear, you weren't notified, you weren't prompted, you didn't hear the phone going off or you didn't hear the little ding. And everyone clapped their hands together like, there you go. And that, and, and really, what it boils down to is all human behavior. And this is this is obviously Dr. Fogg's model here. So I'm speaking on behalf of someone who's put in the decades studying this stuff. But it's a very elegant model where if there's enough motivation to do something, and that behavior is easy enough to do, the moment you're prompted to do that behavior, you're going to do that behavior. The motivation's low, or it's too hard to do, the moment you're notified. You're not going to do the behavior and you're probably going to get frustrated if you continually get prompted. So I tell that story because Drew, you'd mentioned, you know, you, you know, sometimes you get prompted to do something, you get the dings, you're just like, you're just annoyed. Well, it's because you're not motivated. You you just know they're annoying to you because you're just not motivated to take action on it or it's just too hard or too frustrating for you to take action on it. And that's where you notice a lot of times when people don't do behaviors, it's not because one way or another, they it's too easy or too hard, or they have too much motivation or not enough motivation. It's just the right mixture of motivation and ability at the point of being prompted to do something will dictate whether or not someone will actually take, do that behavior. You know, and we were talking about ADHD before we started recording today. Mm-hmm. And, and we were talking about the, the, the ways that we capture the ideas that come floating past our front of mind. And, and I take the same approach with managing my own ADHD is that like, I want to have systems in place that allow me to grab that thing out of the air, that idea, and put it into the right bucket so I can grab onto it later. Or or if I'm sitting on my couch just lollygagging, because I do that sometimes, mm-hmm. and I suddenly get an idea to do something, and I do want to jump on it, I want to make sure that I have the things around me to then take those steps into action so I can get moving into action on it right away. Like a a classic example for me is 
if my desk isn't clean, I have a hard time doing certain types of work, right? So keeping my desk clean is important because it's keeping the space open for me to jump into action when the, and I'm using the idea of like a thought or an idea passing as a notification, right? My own internal ding system that that says, clean your closet or whatever that is, you know? It's, I, I like to look at it as my energy level and the idea intersect with the pathway of ease to actually jumping into action. And I think that's kind of like what you're describing as well, right? Yeah, a little bit. And I think you hit on something really interesting there, Drew, in that not all prompts are created equal and not all prompts happen outside the context of yourself. There are times where you have internal prompts. There are some times where a behavior that you take prompts you to do another behavior. And then there, there, there are those more external prompts that come from elsewhere. But you mentioned like an internal prompt or it, it, this idea that, that you're remembering to do something. Th- those are very common, right? I think the most common one that every human across the world can appreciate is when you have to go to the bathroom. That's an internal prompt. Your body is telling you, hey, it's probably a good idea to go to the bathroom right now, as well as behavior prompts. I'm sure a lot of folks out there, uh, the moment they close their front door, they immediately lock it right? Or they take some action, they, you know, whatever. In a lot of cases, they don't even think about it. The behavior of closing the door prompts them to then lock the door. And we don't think about these things, right? We we don't, we, there's no, we're not thinking like, oh yeah, I was prompted to lock my door. But the behavior of constantly doing one behavior followed up that with a similar or analogous behavior that you are being prompted. You, so there's three different types of prompts. There's the internal prompt, there's the context prompt, which we're laden with all day, every day. And then there's the behavior prompt. Uh, uh, doing a behavior prompts you to do another behavior immediately after that. It makes me think of smoking. So uh, 10 years this month since I haven't had a cigarette, but I did smoke for 10 years. And so there is definitely some of those things where it's like you get in the car, time to light up. The moment you close the door, right? Yeah, yeah and there's definitely those prompts you start to notice more like even if you just had a cigarette when you put yourself into one of those prompts it's like oh doesn't matter i want another now yeah and you were motivated and you had the ability to do it you probably had cigarettes readily available and cigarettes are really motivating you to have another one (laughs) so yeah absolutely yeah absolutely so like thinking about like product design right and i also want to back away from the conversation a little bit with my questions and give you the floor to, to tell us like and drop all this great knowledge. But like, where do you bake this in from a digital product development perspective? Yeah, there's two levels to this. There is, so in, in my work, I work primarily with product teams, right? So I'm working with product managers, engineers, designers to help them and coach them on building great products for their users. There have been times in my career, even with Pathfinder, where I have been tasked with building a product and being that product manager for a company that needs help in some area. So to answer your question, I'll start with the the first, or I guess I'll start with the second flow there. When I approach product, I am the product manager. I'm working with a great team to build a great product for users. How do I, how do I use behavior design to create a successful product? And it really boils down to those two main maxims. So every, every conversation that I have with a potential user, customer, or whomever, 
I'm always asking myself, what is it that these people ultimately want to do? Regardless of what I plan on building, regardless of uh, what I could possibly ask my engineers to build for them, what are they ultimately trying to do? And how can we make it easier for them to do that? So I'll give you an example. I was working with a company this time last year. Can't name the company, but if you're wearing jeans, they might have invented those. <laughs> but uh, regardless, uh, I was tasked with helping to build out an internal product for their internal team who is responsible for global planning. And specifically, they're responsible for ensuring that the right amount of product got to the right store at the right time in forecasting. They, need, they needed instrumentation in order to do their job successfully. In working with these folks, it was clear what they ultimately wanted to do was they wanted the ability to quickly and easily build out these things which are called like size curves. These size curves are basically visual representations of the volume of product relative to the percentage that they plan on sending to a particular customer at any point in time. They wanted the ability to quickly and easily create these. So that's what they wanted to do. They, they were motivated by this because this was a big part of their job, but it was a very cumbersome process for them right now. They knew how to do it. They could use Excel and I think it was like four or five different systems to come up with pretty close to what they think would be an acceptable submission for this piece of work. So I focus in on, okay, how can I make it easier for them to do this? And not just me. I had an entire team. I had a great, oh my gosh, my the guy, the guy I worked with, who my, my UX designer and researcher, he was incredible at surfacing insights and understanding what it was these folks really ultimately wanted to do. And come to find out, we were able to basically make it as easy as possible for these folks to create these size curves. We use AI, we use machine learning models to essentially take, I don't want to overstate the, the impact here, but we took a we took a process that that involved using five different systems and essentially distilled it down to one to two clicks to create these size curves. And it was fantastic. Um, and, and not to say like, you know, they just adopted uh, whatever the machine learning model presented to them and spit back to them in this one click. They, they had human discernment to adjust things as time went along. But nonetheless, we focused in on how can we make it easier to help them do the things they want to do, i.e. create these these models. And how can we make them feel successful? How can we help them feel the success of doing that so they want to do it over and over and over again? Even though it's their job, it's still a job. It's still something they have to do. So how can we make them feel successful so it creates that motivation to come back and do it again and again and again and become even more successful and quicker and faster to produce these models than it was previously? I love that your example there is a back office system. Mm -hmm and not like something that gets sold to a customer, right? Because I think that that was where my mind was going first was, well, you know, how do you fit behavioral design into a back office system mm -hmm. where, where maybe there's not as much recognition for creating these systems that are habitual, that encourage a focus on an outcome and, and guide people down the, the rabbit hole to the place where they're trying to actually get to. You know, you see that a lot more in in front end product design, mm -hmm. as opposed to like back office product design. Yeah, no, I and I take a pretty, for better or worse, I take a pretty broad definition of outcome. 
for me, an outcome is just a new or change in a current behavior, regardless of who's doing the behavior, regardless of who we're trying to create this outcome for. At the end of the day, we're trying to create a new behavior or change an existing behavior in some way, shape, or form. One of the rallying cries for this product was, you know, when we were doing our, our problem discovery with these internal folks, uh, we heard a lot of stories around, you know, I have, to, I have to stay up at night to do this stuff. And we had this one, one gentleman, uh, he was awesome. And he was telling us a story about how he had to debate whether or not he was going to go on a brewery tour trip with his friends or, or continue to work. And we kind of used him as like a rallying cry. It's like, okay, how can we help him? not have to decide between going to a brewery tour and doing his work, which had nothing to do with product as you think about it, but it was a great empathy exercise and it became like our rallying cry. It's like uh, we, we had like this mantra almost of like brewery tours over work, but we had a problem to solve, but we had a behavior behind the problem that we we're ultimately trying to change. And the outcome of that was he didn't have to choose between going on brewery tours with his friends and work. He can get his work done at a reasonable hour and have both. So it, it was cool to kind of have that that outcome be the rallying cry behind the product work that we did day in and day out. Yeah. Behavior design for good, getting us to the brewery. I love yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, behavior design, whether you use it at, for yourself or you use it to influence behavior change in other people, I think that there's something that needs to be said here. And I think it comes to the ethics behind behavior design. And, and Dr. Fogg, to his, to his credit, acknowledges this, and he talks about it a lot. If the goal of the person trying to change your behavior is different than your own goal, then we have an ethics concern. Like, for instance, uh, if you've ever watched The Social Dilemma at this point by Tristan Harris. Tristan Harris, for for context, was actually a student of Dr. Fogg's at, at Stanford. And he has this really oh. interesting example of uh, Snapchat and how it is extractive in nature of, of young teens. And the example he used there to describe the ethical dilemma is that the, the company Snapchat has a very different goal than young Susie Q or Timmy using Snapchat for entertainment purposes, right? You have like 10,000 developers behind a screen trying to extract and trying to make things easier for young, young teens to do for a completely different goal than the user does in this case. So for me, that's where the ethical concern behind behavior design surfaces. But if you're aligning your goal for behavior change with the goal of the person that you're trying to change behavior of, you have some really exciting possibilities there for good. In, in a lot of cases. You know, I'm thinking about like right now I'm working with a company and we're creating a, a pipeline, an end-to-end -end pipeline with their, uh, they have multiple sales floors that then lead into a, a delivery mechanism where, where they're doing a service for, for customers. And we're creating two primary systems. One's a CRM and one's a work, work management for delivery system. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're, we're designing it so that the salespeople can stay in the CRM and the delivery people can stay in, in their work management system. But sometimes there's an instance where there's an overlap. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm trying to create this scenario where, where we're feeding back the right information back and forth across the aisle that allows for everybody to stay in their system of record. And I'm sitting here thinking about this in contrast to what you're saying and, and, you know, 
trying to create a transitional workflow potentially instead of going straight to that ultimate state where I'm like forcing everybody to adopt new methodologies, but doing it in a more iterative and slow rollout way where I can change the behavior over time to keep, to, to move people into the system where they should be mm-hmm. as opposed to creating that hard divide. Is that like, are we talking about the same sort of thing here when I'm thinking about it in that regard or, or, or am I off the mark? You, you said something interesting uh, on the mark, Drew, but you said something interesting there. There's a difference between helping people do the things they want to do and even ourselves and a difference between that and a difference between what we think they should do, right? So what I want to do and what I should do can be two completely different things. What I want to do is I you know I want to go out and get five guys burgers, but in my mind I'm like oh I should really have a salad and not say like you know I'm just going to make it easier for myself to get a five guys burger or I'm going to make it easier for what I think people should be doing I'm going to make those behaviors easier but I think it's it's really interesting to think about it in terms of okay when someone interacts with one of these systems what do they ultimately want to do not necessarily what what we think they should do. But what do they ultimately want to do and how can we design it in a way that helps them do those things? CRMs are very interesting. Personally, I, <laughs> I've i seen a lot of cases where people just don't use it for whatever reason. It's not because they don't think it's great and valuable, but it just doesn't help them. Like they've already, they've already done the work and now they have to record it in a system. But regardless of, of that action, what do they ultimately want to do? Well, they want to remember, they want to be able to remember what was said and what was discussed and what was decided during a client site visit. It's like, okay, well, how can we help them do that? Do we have to design a system that requires them to spend an hour every single day at the end of the day, trying to remember what they did and didn't do at a meeting and record it? Or is there another more elegant way where we can help them still remember and trigger their memory for what transpired without having to be explicit about it. I don't have the answer, but what you said was really interesting because should and what they ultimately want to do could be two completely different things. And with behavior design, it's focused on helping people do the things they want to do. One of the things that I've helped them to kind of shift a bit is initially, if you ask them what they want, what they want is to close sales, all right? But what they should want, and I know I'm using should, What they should want is to close the sale in a way where it results in a more likely successful delivery of of the services that have been sold. And I've helped them to realize that what they should be looking at is that more successful because if it's not successful, then it winds up coming back to them which takes them away from their ability to make money by selling because they're spending more time. And so I've part of the way that I've designed that system was to help them to see that part of it as opposed to just seeing the, the closure of it. Sure. Okay. That that's a lot clearer for me. And I appreciate you explaining that. I think what we're talking about here is a difference between an aspiration and a behavior. I'll give you an example. I want to run a marathon. That's an aspiration. That's not something I can just up stand up and do like right this second. Right. I, I want to be able to save $500 right now. I can't just pull out my wallet and put it in my phone and have that electronically sent to my bank. Like those are, those are aspirations at the end of the day. When we talk about a behavior, we're talking about the very small thing that they could possibly do right this second 
with no intervention. So the behavior is, or the aspiration, if you will, is built up of a bunch of little different behaviors at the end of the day. If I want to run a marathon, well, what could I do? Well, I could put my shoes on right now. That's a behavior. Um, I could tie my shoes. That's a behavior. I could quickly stretch. All these things culminate to the aspiration eventually of me running that marathon. So I think that's the that's the nuance we're talking about here is the, the aspirational aspect versus the tiny behaviors to, to reach that aspiration. Got it. That makes sense. Interesting. So does BJ Fogg have anything, I'll say, in kind of like a OCM sense of how do I get people to want to do something? How do I get people to want to do something? Yeah, I, th- I mean, there is, he has some really, really cool kind of mini workshops that you can do with yourself. But the idea here is to tie this together is to state the aspiration and clarify the aspiration, right? Instead of saying, you know, I want to run a marathon, uh, maybe maybe the true aspiration is I just want to live a healthier lifestyle, whatever that may look like. I don't know. But really, mm-hmm. really focus in on clarifying that aspiration. And then if you read the book, Tiny Habits, or, or you practice behavior design, he has this really great exercise. I think it's called behavior swarming, where essentially you just write all the little different behaviors that you could possibly do. You don't, and you don't edit yourself. All the different behaviors you could possibly do to reach that aspiration. And on the vertical axis, you kind of map out, okay, relative to other behaviors, is this behavior going to uh, help me achieve this aspiration? Is, is it highly likely that if I do this behavior, it would help me achieve this aspiration? And then on the horizontal axis is the likelihood that I actually want to do it, right? So anything in the upper left-hand quadrant are kind of like what, what he refers to as like your golden behaviors. They're, you're, they're, they're going to be instrumental in helping you reach that aspiration. You actually want to do them. And there were a lot of times where even my own personal life, there was a lot of things that I didn't think I wanted to do. But when I saw it laid out against all the little different behaviors that I brainstormed on my desk, I was like, oh, wow, I actually, relative to some of these other things, I actually do want to do this. So in that respect, it's, if you identify all the possible, not all of them, but you know, you identify a, 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 a magnitude of behaviors that could help you reach an aspiration relative to one another, you'll be really surprised that some of the things that you thought you didn't want to do, uh, you ultimately end up wanting to do, at least in my own personal case. I think everyone's mileage will vary there, but I hope that answers the question. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out if I can Jedi mind trick people with BJ Fogg's approach to it. And I'm just curious when I think about if we go back to social media, Mm -hmm. before I used social media, I never knew that I wanted someone to click an imaginary thumb right, on a post. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't something that I desired. However, it's designed in a way to trigger the dopamine release of, oh, somebody like that. I like dopamine. So I'm going to start hunting for likes, mm-hmm. even though that wasn't something I ever knew that I wanted, mm-hmm. especially for those of us that are older than social media. We didn't have that growing up. So it wasn't something we expected. It wasn't something I would say we were indoctrinated in. It was a behavior that was kind of put on to us. Sure. And I'm curious if this, if that aligns with the same kind of approach to behavior or if there's something else going on there. This hits the bedrock of behavior design, actually. 
there has been a mountain of evidence to, and, and BJ has been a part of this, Dr. Fogg has been a part of this research, in a lot of cases leading this research, that debunks the idea that repetition creates habit. Doing something more often, it becomes habitual. You know, if you do the same thing for 27 days, it's going to become a habit. What actually creates habits are emotions, and more specifically, positive emotions. So when your brain expects a certain reward for doing something and the actual reward exceeds what your brain, like you said, it opens up the dopamine chain and it creates a sense of euphoria and pleasure and you have positive emotions, you feel happy. You're more likely to do that behavior again in the future because your brain is now wired to think, ooh, I like that. I want to do that again because I like how it made me feel. So when we talk about behavior design, I think BJ puts it out across a a spectrum of, you know, decisions all the way towards the left-hand side and reflexes on the right-hand side. And a behavior, and there's no mathematical or mathematics behind this, but you'll notice that a behavior moves closer to a reflex, the more positive the emotion you feel while you do it. Mm -hmm. um, so in that case, Brad, what I'm saying, what I, what I think you're saying is it felt good for people to interact with your content which made you feel like you wanted to create more content. It became habitual because you were, and a lot of people do this, like they they, they, they hunt for likes, they hunt for mm -hmm. interaction, they hunt for people to, to feel something uh, based upon what, what you provide to them. But that's that's the emo that, that you're feeling positive emotions. And whenever you log in and you see the little red icon, you click on it, you say, hey, someone else liked my post. Like that feels good. And you're probably going to do it mm -hmm. again in the future to continue to feel that way. Um, so I think what you're talking about is actually the bedrock of behavior design is that it's not repetition that creates a habit. Repetition just makes a behavior easier to do. It's mm -hmm. the emotion you feel while doing it or immediately after doing it that will indicate whether or not that will move closer to a reflex as opposed to a decision and ultimately become a habit or not. It makes me think a little bit of change in an organization as a coach or as a manager when I'm trying to promote a certain behavior, I recognize that behavior. Mm -hmm. right? Somebody does something that I'm trying to get them to do. I give them appreciation of some kind. <laughs> right? I give them praise. I'm like, oh, that was amazing. I, I publicly announce it to the team. Or I do something. I give them something. And it can be even something that I've asked them to do. But then I'm like, well, let's make a big deal about that. And then when they do something I don't want them to do, I, d I don't really respond. Mm. And that's something that I've definitely, I would say, used throughout my career. And I'm kind of having a little bit of an epiphany moment here where it's like, I, I think that is similar where I'm creating this reward for this behavior that makes people feel good. So they're more likely to do the thing I want them to do. Yeah. And, and that goes a long way in motivation. So we think about motivation. Uh, we're really motivated by one or two things, the reward or the assurance that we're not going to be hurt in any way, right? And if you remember what we talked about, I think earlier in the podcast, this idea of helping people do the things they want to do and helping them feel the success of doing that, the reason why that second maxim is there is because that is what's going to hardwire that behavior into becoming a habit more and more and more. If you help people feel the success of doing the things they want to do, it's going to create that dopamine rush. It's going to create that reward prediction fault almost where it's like the brain expected it to, to feel this good, but actually felt, you know, even greater. It felt awesome. And I feel great. I, I want to do this again. 
what you said there was really insightful because for me, when you talk about transformation efforts, you talk about changing people's behavior, whatever it may be, it always starts at that very, very small level of not necessarily me praising you, but helping you feel the success of what you just did. Because my praise is only going to go so far. But if you feel the success, that's going to create success momentum for you. It's going to move you along the behavior model. And uh, you'll notice you'll be able to do harder and harder behaviors because your motivation is going to stay fairly high. Now, motivation fluctuates. That's why even in behavior design, we, we kind of shy away from honing in on motivation and, and motivating people to do things because that's the least predictable of the three variables between mm-hmm. ability and prompts. But nonetheless, it is a variable in behavior. It's something we need to keep an eye on. But if people feel their success, it's going to shoot their motivation through the roof and it's going to allow them to do even bigger, badder, better things. Yeah. When we talk about like parenting is what I'm going to go with. And Simon Sinek has said that his favorite leadership books are parenting books. <laughs> so I think it's relevant to the workplace as well. We often say that people are motivated by, I'll say, pain avoidance mm-hmm. or rewards. And it seems, and I'm definitely no expert in this, although psychology is a, a passion of mine, uh, I have no degree, self-taught, so probably not the wisest. Uh, however, when we think about it, you know, we tend to think of kids of like, I, I touched the hot stove, it burned my hand, that sucked. I'm not doing that again. Does this uh, behavioral design, BJ Fogg, does he talk about that at all? Like pain versus reward? Or is just everyone motivated in his eyes or in his approach with the reward? Uh, so there's a, there's a couple. I think this is touched on more when, we, when he talks about motivation. There's motivational vectors, right? You can have opposing motivations or conflicting motivations for the same behavior or motivations for two completely separate behaviors, right? You can be motivated to both have a bowl of ice cream and also go on a run. So those are two different behaviors and and your motivation is going to be conflicted as to whether or not you do one of those two behaviors. But also even for like the same behavior, you could be motivated and demotivated to do a behavior. And again, I don't know the research like the back of my hand, but I do know that he espouses reducing the demotivators focusing more on removing demotivators as opposed to creating motivators to spur behavior change. And I don't think there's anything wrong with focusing on motivation. I just agree with the fact that it's probably the last variable that we need to focus on and not the first because it is, gosh, how does he call it? I think he calls it the motivation monkey uh, in the book where it's like (laughs) motivation is like that uh, really awesome friend you had in college. Great for a night out. But don't expect them to come pick you up at the airport at two o'clock in the morning because <laughs> uh, it's just so unpredictable. It's so unreliable. Um, so what can we focus on instead? Well, we can focus on ability, making things easier to do, giving people new skills, teaching them new skills, giving them tools to make a behavior easier to do and focusing in on the prompt and making sure we're prompting them at the appropriate time in conjunction with motivation and, and ability as well. There's a bunch of ways that we bake this into agile coaching and scrum and whatnot. The first way is, I know for me, I've talked about this before in a retrospective at the end of a sprint, it's not just what went well, what didn't go so well and what should we do differently. But I always add a fourth column for shout outs, like who, 
who did a great job this sprint and what do we appreciate about somebody else on the team, mm -hmm. right? The other way that we break this in is in the system demo or the, the sprint review, right? Where we wanna make sure that it's not the product owner who is doing the demo and showing the functionality to the stakeholders, that it's the actual developers who had their hands on the keyboard that are doing that and that the stakeholders are there in the room and that the developer gets that feeling of pride mm -hmm. to say, I did this for you, right? And you know, I think the other from the other side of the coin, right? The other way that we approach this in Agile is there's no more mistakes. We don't make mistakes anymore. There's no more failure. Failure is an opportunity to learn, mm -hmm. right? So there's no more shame around making a mistake because we're now looking at it as, well, what do we get from that experience? You know, mm -hmm. so um, I know for me, and I've told this story before. I'm not going to go into it again, but. Like I definitely, not because you're not worthy of it, Don, but um, because it's a long way. I don't want to tell stories in a short way. Um, but I am the kind of coach that I'm always looking for how do the people I'm working with want to feel recognition? What, what type of recognition do they like? And then tapping into that to then give them that recognition and making sure that I'm pressing that button on a regular basis. Mm. Um, yeah. That reminds me, I think it's Gary Chapman has the five love languages. He also has the five love languages, colon, appreciation at work. I don't know how much, I don't know. I feel like the map to work might just be maybe not the most in-depth. It was just like, hey, how can we apply this to another situation? Because as soon as you start talking about physical appreciation, it gets really weird in the workplace and even more difficult virtually. But I like that you said that. And that's something that I've been doing research at my own company for recently as well. But one of the things too that you touched on, Don, was ability. And it sounds like that's just as important as the reward piece. And that makes me think of transparency. That's a big thing in Scrum, making it knowledge and everything available to everyone. So you have no excuse not to be aware and not to do something, yeah. not throw something in the backlog. But it also makes me think, Drew, you've said multiple times in the past about your retros, how you open your retro board at the beginning of the sprint. So people can just throw stuff in as they go and they don't have to try to remember all of them at the end. Yeah, that's true too. That's like me intersecting somebody's thought, right? To do something with their capabilities. I just butchered that, but you guys know what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> what if what if I were to tell you guys that there is, well, they're distributed, but there's a team of engineers out there where their favorite meeting is the daily scrum. Would it shock you? If it shocked me when it when I saw it transpire, but there's a team out there, and I, and I'll, and I can dive into the story. But there's a team out there of engineers where their the daily scrum is by far their favorite meeting of the day, and it's uh, for is it their only one? Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> Capture them, bring them back to the lab. We need to study. Them. Yeah. So we had a, a retrospective. Um, and we were playing around with behavior design and I, you know, this was after I had, you know, kind of taught the core principles to them. And during the retrospective, and this was a very mature group to begin with, not just in terms of agility or, or practices, but just there's a lot of wisdom on this team. And they're, they're like, you know, we, we, we aspire to just have a sense of camaraderie and feeling like we can share anything with one another. Like that's our true aspiration. And a handful of them actually created a tiny habit recipe that they would practice during the daily scrum. And I thought it was really eloquent. Their tiny habit was, after I log off from the daily scrum, 
I will tell one of my team members one thing that I appreciate about them every single day. And, and this is a team of seven engineers. Two of them did that. That was just, that, that's what they wanted to do. That was a habit that they wanted to have. Mm-hmm. After I log off from the daily scrum, I'm going to go to Slack and I'm going to tell one of my team members something I appreciate about them. And within a week, all seven of them were practicing this. All seven of them were sending each other these great little notes of affirmation. And it was very easy to do, right? It's like, oh, and it, and it was mm-hmm. prompted by a behavior. The moment I log off, boom. Hey, I really appreciated what you contributed during the daily scrum. It's really going to help me out throughout the day. And eventually, all seven of them, by the end of the week, all seven of them were doing this. And then within a month, we had done a retrospective. It's like, oh, yeah, we, we love the daily scrum. Like, there's no prompting whatsoever to do that. Like, they are looking forward to doing the daily scrum because they're looking forward to just hyping each other up and getting and getting hype messages back and forth afterwards. And it's like, it's just really cool to see. It's like, you know, but it started with that aspiration and it, and it got so, this tiny, this little 10 second behavior turned the daily scrum into their favorite meeting as a team. No scrum master there to tell them, hey, it's time for stand up. No product owner saying, hey, you know, it's time for time for stand up. No, they wanted to do it because they knew, but by the time it was, it was about to end or the moment they logged off, Everyone was going to start sending each other awesome notes to one another. A little, hey, great job. Hey, I appreciated that. Hey, I think you're doing a great job um, keeping us on track, whatever it may be. So I just thought that was really cool. And I wanted to share that um, with you guys. That is really cool. I, awesome. I, I am envisioning, though, a scenario where there's a stand-up of like five people and they're each saying, the house is on fire, the house is on fire, the house is on fire, right? This is what I did yesterday. Mm-hmm. And they get off and they're like, I loved your shirt today. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's an important point too. I'm not gonna say like the daily scrum was like uh, it was like all sunshine and rain, but like there were some like yeah we're off track or yeah we're not going to hit this goal or yeah I can't do this because X Y Z team can't get their stuff together to to get me unblocked whatever may on the surface it looked like your normal daily scrum, uh, but under the surface it was being driven by these little tiny habits of affirmation and appreciation and you know it sometimes they just send each other like funny jokes but it always happened literally within 30 seconds of of the daily scrum ending uh yeah and we got we heard back like yeah the daily scrum is like our favorite meeting like that is the first time in my career i've ever heard a group of engineers say that they enjoy not only enjoy the daily scrum but look forward to it every single day which i thought was pretty cool yeah that's oh go on brad one of the things that I love about that too is that it touches on one of the four or five things that Sean Aker says people should do to create happiness, essentially. He's a positive psychologist and he's got a book called The Happiness Advantage, read it multiple times, probably need to read it again. But these little tiny habits, one of them is just send a message of gratitude to someone every day mm-hmm. and that helps you feel happier. And the reason why it's called The Happiness Advantage is the happier you are, the more likely you are to succeed in whatever it is you're trying to do. And we tend to think the opposite way. We tend to think, I achieve the thing, I'll be happy. Mm. And the reality is that's not the case. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. There, there's a, the positive emotion behind a behavior definitely plays a huge factor. I, I think it's important to note, not, and I'll, I'll put a cap on this, I think it's important to note that this behavior was not dictated by anyone on this team. Is literally just two engineers who are like, I just want to do this. It's a habit I want to build. I think it's going to help us reach this aspiration. But no one else was like, they didn't want it. It wasn't like we were forcing them to do this. 
but it was very interesting to see again they were doing the things they wanted to do they felt great doing it because who doesn't love sending people awesome notes of appreciation um and then within the week everyone was doing it but again they wanted to do it no one was telling them what to do they just wanted to do it they wanted to adopt it so that's kind of how it spread and i thought that was really cool but to your point brad about about happiness yeah the happier you are the more motivated you're going to do you're going to be to take on bigger badder harder behaviors um as time goes on so we were talking about before we got on and started recording this, we were talking about like, what's the tangible takeaway? Mm -hmm. And I think this is it, right? Like, because th this is something that I, I've tried to do in, in many of the organizations I've worked for, not as like as simple as, as you're talking about it. And it's definitely something I'm going to start using in the future. Mm -hmm. But like, what, what's the name of the, the psychologist or psychiatrist who did that experiment where he had everybody going into the waiting room and there was a bell that went off and one person stood up every time the bell went off and then two people. And then by the time the waiting room, it, do you know what I'm talking about? I don't know the name, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. I thought you were going to bring up the Stanford project for a second. I was like, Ooh, I don't know if I want to go there, but. <laughs> oh no. no. <laughs> I, I think it's, it's, it might be the Milgram experiment, but that might be the one that might be the bad one. Mm -hmm. uh, with this one, you know, I forget what it's called. I'll remember it. But um, you know, the, the first person goes into a waiting room, right. And they're an actor or rather, no, there's, there's seven actors in a waiting room and the first person goes in who's not an actor. And when the bell goes off, all the actors stand up and that last person then kind of feels weird and so they stand up too. And slowly, one by one, the actors are called into the doctor's office. Mm -hmm. And so now you get to a point where the only people in the waiting room are no longer actors, they're just people who've come in and now they've learned this behavior of when the bell goes off, we all stand up. And now it's just become this norm in this waiting room that this is what happens because every new person gets indoctrinated into that. And and I try to look at that kind of thing when I'm trying to build transformational habits mm -hmm. with my teams, right? Like I know mm -hmm. I'm never never gonna walk on site into a an agile coaching engagement where everybody's like, Hey Drew, we're so glad you're here. Like, let's talk about this, right? <laughs> but I know that there's always going to be two or three, or hopefully more than that, right? Who are, and instead of trying to focus on getting all seven people to start changing the behavior of standing every time the bell goes off, right? I focus on just those three people, and and the approach I've always taken is is to highlight all of the great things that those three people have been able to achieve by adopting these new capabilities and these new new principles and yeah. ways of working as a way to then get those other people to then want to start standing up every time the bell goes off. So I, I do think the tangible takeaway from this episode, though, it, that's really simple is if you're a scrum master out there is listening to this episode, right, you can try this experiment. Find Find somebody else on your team who you think is like hip, chill, you know, ready to like do this kind of thing and create this tiny habit of after your standup, right? The two of you guys send messages to the rest of the people on the team and just tell them how wonderful whatever it was that they did was for you and, and try it as an experiment to see if you can now get a third person to do that and a fourth person and a fifth person and now get your whole team 
to be developing this habit of gratitude bombing at the end of standups. Like, I think that would be really super cool thing to, to try to experiment with. Yeah, absolutely. I drew it. I think, think you hit on this idea of you can also clarify a common aspiration and people can take different behaviors to reach it. Right. So my modality for creating cohesiveness and camaraderie might be to send you drew a slack message after daily standup. Yours might be once a week inviting someone out on the team to lunch if you're more of like an in-person type of person. So everyone can, can do different behaviors to reach this common aspiration. But I think, I think what you're talking about is really, really important. You can have a common aspiration as a team. That doesn't mean everyone has to do the exact same behavior. They're invited to do it. That doesn't mean you have to do the exact same behavior to reach that common aspiration. Help people do the things they want to do. I want to send you a Slack message through telling you how awesome you are. You want to, you know, when you, when you sit down in the morning and you put your coffee cup down on your desk, you're going to pull up Slack and, and invite someone out to lunch later on, you know, that Friday. Two very different behaviors, but we're both driving towards the same common aspiration. So I think it's a very salient point. And yeah, that's, that, that's really the takeaway for me too, is start small, scale back the change you want to see make that change easier for people to do and help them feel the success of creating that change for themselves. Absolutely. Totally on board with that. And, and I saw you at product camp, which is my only unconference experience. <laughs> and we were talking about that a few episodes ago with uh, Ron and, and Todd, you know, Todd, because fast is based off of open space. But at the conference, you gave a little bit of a breakdown of how you would apply it to yourself, mm -hmm. like if I want to become healthier. Mm -hmm. And I felt like that was a really good lesson broken down in a very simple way where it helped me to understand kind of like making it easy, having a, a prompt and rewarding myself. So if you wouldn't, if you would indulge me, <laughs> can you give your, uh, I mean, it can be your push-up example or it can be a different uh, one, but... I think it's helpful. How about we avoid the embarrassing example that I gave and I'll use one of the attendees <laughs> examples, uh, which, which, which drives home the exact same point. So to, to pull the, the talk together, and at this point it was almost a year ago, so the details are going to be fuzzy, but I'm going to try my best. Uh, there was a gentleman in the crowd who, who he told me, hey, uh, you know, at night I do a really poor job of brushing my teeth before I go to bed. And I want to change my behavior. I want to be able to go to bed at night feeling like, you know, I did everything in my nightly routine and I ended it with uh, brushing my teeth. I said, okay, well, what do you normally do at night? Like what, like, what is your routine at night? What is like that one thing that you do every single night before you go to bed? He's like, well, I definitely go to the bathroom. I walk, I at least walk into the bathroom every single night. I'm like, okay. So we kind of, we designed this tiny behavior. And then he brought up floss. He's like, you know, I really want to like floss my teeth more. I'm like, okay, let's, let's focus in on that. How about this? Try this. Let me know if it works for you. After you walk into the bathroom, you will pull out the floss. Just pull it out. And then look at yourself in the mirror and say, I'm the man. Like, like give yourself like a positive affirmation. And you look at me kind of confused. He goes, well, what do you mean? Like, I don't need to floss my teeth? I said, no, no I know what you want to do, but consider it extra credit. At the very least, just pull it out. And then as time goes on, maybe you already have the floss out on the table so you don't have to pull it out anymore. And he's like, okay. So by the, by the end of it, I think the punchline was by the end of it, 
everyone was kind of laughing because it truly we're truly talking about small tiny behaviors like we're not talking about boiling the ocean we're not talking about flossing all your teeth every single night because that's much harder to do than just flossing maybe one or two teeth and i think i think even bj brought it the reason why i was excited by that example because it, it, even in tiny habits bj talked about this idea of like yeah i just started flossing one tooth a month and i thought i was like so awesome and i was giving myself like positive <laughs> affirmations or like after i go to the bathroom like i do like two push-ups or something and the idea is to scale the behavior back, make it as easy as possible to do and help yourself feel successful in doing it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've, I've, I've been using it for so long. Uh, I think not to, this isn't a, you know, Hey, look at Dom, Dom's so awesome, but I I've, I've lost over 60 pounds myself doing tiny habits. And it all started with me just putting on one shoe after work every single day, just put on one shoe, one running shoe. And eventually it turned into this, it, it grew, the habit grew into me doing bigger, badder, better things. I would go on runs, I'd go on walks, you know, eventually started signing up for group fitness classes. So there is a lot of power in starting small. And I would say, especially for agile coaches, scrum masters, anyone out there who's working with a team and you're trying to get them to adopt practices that are going to ultimately uh, help them start as small as possible celebrate the small wins and watch the success momentum build up. Yeah. I don't remember now if it was tiny habits or atomic habits, which is based off of BJ Fogg's work, right? But it's a different guy. Is that correct? Uh, James clear. Yeah. 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 Uh, one of them gave the example, I believe where you walk by the weights, do one curl. Mm -hmm. Odds are, if you do one, you're likely going to do more. <laughs> But just like doing that one, right, it gets you, gets the motivation going. Yeah. Anything more than one is extra credit. That doesn't mean yeah. you have to continue. The, the day you do two or three, you have to continue doing two or three moving forward. Always just come back to that one. Um, I always like to use the example. What, what would you be willing to do if you were sick, laying in bed? Could you still get up and do one squat? Probably. You're probably not going to go work out that day. But you could probably at least <laughs> stand up, do one squat and maybe crawl back into bed because you're so sick. That's how tiny I'm talking. Like even when your motivation is so low, what is that one behavior that is so easy to do that it becomes repetitious, becomes habitual and you feel good while you do it. Awesome. It's called habit stacking, right? I think that's what James Clear calls it, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Uh, habit chaining, habit stacking. I think that, yeah. But it's basically, yeah, yeah it, it's this idea of the best prompt is a behavioral prompt. It's the most reliable. Because the moment you do something, you're, that is a good trigger for you to do something else again or do a different behavior um, in that case. But yeah, I think James Clear, honestly, if I'm being, if I can be open for a moment, I have not read Atomic <laughs> Habits. I know a lot of people who have. Uh, I've heard great things, but I, I, have, I myself have not read Atomic Habits, unfortunately. I heard it's a great book. Uh, though. That's it. No longer uh, a professional here. No, nope, we're done. No, nope, no, nope. exposed, <laughs> exposed. Yeah. On, I guess, the knowledge or training topic, though, you are a part of BJ Fogg's training program. Like he's got an actual training program yeah. with coaches and you meet regularly and it, it seems pretty in depth. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So it's called Tiny Habits Academy. If you go to tinyhabitsacademy.com, it is a program for folks who want to become certified in tiny habits. And what's really cool about it, my favorite part, is you have the ability to work with BJ pretty much on a monthly basis where he kind of brings back his 
latest and greatest research from his Stanford uh, research lab, his beha uh, behavior design research lab. And you kind of walk through some newer concepts that maybe you don't necessarily read about in the book or you, or you double down and you learn, you go deeper into the, uh, the what behind a lot of things that you read in the book. But yeah, it's a great program. I would say, especially if you are interested in this idea of behavior design and tiny habits, it's definitely a great program to go through. You build a lot of really great connections with folks and you ultimately get to use his models and methods and great visualizations that you can use as well. But he allows you to use his work in your practice, which is, which is pretty cool. On top of the fact that you get to work with BJ, he has office hours, Q&A, invites you to a lot of different stuff that he's a part of. It's, it's a pretty cool experience. That is pretty cool. So, so you hang out with BJ Fogg regularly, and then like a month ago, you're hanging out with Marty Kagan. Oh, man. <laughs> Uh, definitely jelly. Yeah, that, that was that was in December. That was a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, so Mar like, yeah, Marty, Chris, and Christian and Leah and the whole the whole SVPG partnership gang was uh, they invited us out to New York and yeah, that was a that was a good time. I got to meet some really great coaches and obviously met a got to meet up with a lot of a lot of the partners at Silicon Valley Product Group and uh, yeah, it's a pretty cool group. Yeah, I, I'd be curious what Marty would think of our podcast because he's. I don't know. He's like, don't say the word agile, but the things I'm teaching you are agile type person. Yeah. You know what? I like to think of it. You know, you, I'm a product coach. There's agile coaches out there. I would say this much. I I've worked with a lot of really awesome agile coaches and we speak the same language, maybe just a little bit of a different dialect, but we're all driving towards the same things. Now I'll, I'll admit I've worked with some agile coaches who are more process and framework oriented and like that's their bread and butter and that's what they that's what they make their 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 mark on but I, I i do have to admit that i have been pleasantly surprised especially working with larger companies over the last couple of years i don't know what's happened over the last couple of years from an agile coaching perspective but i've noticed that a lot of agile coaches are getting not once they getting away from frameworks they're definitely still utilizing them to teach and help people learn concepts quickly but they're focusing more on the principles behind the frameworks, which is just like so awesome to see because the, the, the principles are what are, what are going to be enduring. Those are the things that have been time tested. Those are the things that everyone kind of aligns around. So I, I do like the principle first approach. And I've noticed a lot of great agile coaches doing that as of recently. Maybe, maybe it's my own perception. Maybe, maybe I'm just now starting to notice it. I don't know, but it's really encouraging. So if Marty yeah. were to comment on the podcast, I would definitely say between the three of us, we, maybe speak the same language as different dialects, but we're all driving towards the same thing, right? Creating value for both the customer and the business. So, Well, and, and that's the thing that I've noticed, right? Is that it is the principles that matter the most, yeah. right? And, and like, we, you know, we were talking about fast a few weeks back with, with Todd and Ron. The thing that I really took note of is that, you know, fast as a methodology, you can't just do fast without being the principles that are behind it, right? And like the same thing with Silicon Valley Product Group, right? Like you're really being, you're embodying this idea of, of product development first, right? Product first, customer first, right? Very user-centric. Uh, most of the companies that, that I get to work with, they don't want the principles, they just want the process and the methodology and, you know, uh, what is it? The underwear gnomes, uh, step one, collect underwear, step three, profit. Um, 
that's where the misalignment comes into play with Silicon Valley product group and the agile community is that as, as agile coaches, we don't often get that unicorn engagement where they're ready to just dive into like the, the dogma and the principles of, of value stream, you know, mapping and, and customer centricity and behavioral design, mm-hmm. right? Which is why when you brought up the idea of that unspecified uh, jeans brand, you know, with their back office system where you were having the time and the space to actually do behavioral design, right? Like I don't find very often that that organizations and companies want to really bake in that degree of of dogma and principality in trying to create habits for a back-end system for somebody who is, you know, scheduling loan payments or something like that, sure. right? Like, I think you and I were talking about this the other day, Drew, where it's like you... We're trying to help corporations get back to that startup mindset. Startups know very uh, acutely you have to work towards outcomes. You have to deliver value. And then as they scale, they tend to forget that. They tend to lose that. However, I think that there's people who have only worked in corporations once they've reached that scale inefficiency. Because corporations have been around for you know 100 more years. And so you have people who their whole business experience, their whole resume is working in these, I'll call them less than ideal systems. I don't want to call them broken, less than ideal systems. And I think coaches, okay, you can call them broken. (laughs) But I think there's agile coaches that have grown up in those environments as well, where all they've done is fixing process or half PM, half scrum master. And so they, they've, that's all they've experienced. So they don't understand that there's supposed to be more to it. Yeah. And those are the people that I'm guessing Marty has interacted with and other people interact with where they're like, I tried this and it didn't work. I agree with that. Yeah. There's this, there's this idea and this concept that I, that I wholeheartedly agree with that if you want to create an environment where people feel empowered to solve tough challenges on behalf of the business and on behalf of the customer, you don't scale process. You scale leadership. Scale the ability to lead. That doesn't mean create more managers. It means create better leadership across the organization. And a lot of companies, and I've noticed this, maybe not, maybe not in the recently since you know, uh, since the pandemic. But even before the pandemic, I saw a lot of people wanted to scale process, but they didn't want to scale leadership. And what I've noticed is a lot of managers misinterpret their role as leaders as a leader it is your job to do two things coach your teams and develop your people in becoming the best possible version of themselves in their role today and a lot of managers they think that what got them to where they are today is what's going to get them to the next level right so how do how do most people become managers will become they're great individual contributors on teams they produce, they produce, they produce, they build trust in their production of building value in a company. Great, you should lead these people. So what do they do? Well, they they think, well, what got me to this leadership position is producing. So produce these things. Here, I'm going to manage what you do. Here, I need you to build this. Why isn't this done yet? It, it, you notice a lot of managers who are attracted to stuff like that because they, they used to be really great individual contributors. And they think that producing is going to help people in their careers. and It's going to help them get to the next level. But as a 
as a leader, you have to coach and develop your people. Like that is the only reason why you are there in a lot of cases. And, and a lot of great, strong product companies understand that. Great managers who are great leaders who can coach and develop their teams are the ones that stick around, the ones that they want to stick around because they're able to do that. But yeah, quite the conundrum. I'll give you that. Management is essentially just, the concept of management is essentially just a pyramid scheme, right? Whereas mm. whereas leadership, leadership principles, and I think I would add like the third thing that, that a leader should really do is ask their team, what can I do for you, right? What do you need for me to do for you in order to help you to do your job better? Yeah. In, in a management-based system, everybody is pointed at serving the person above them, mm. right? Whereas in a leadership principle where we're serving each other, and it doesn't matter where we are on an org chart. Yeah, I, I do empathize to a, cert, to a degree though with a lot of people in management positions in that there's no training manual, manual out there for how to be a manager. Mm -hmm. There's no, no one knows innately how to manage other people in a corporate, in a work environment. So I empathize with them. And, and a lot of people are learning on the job and they're doing the best they possibly can do. But it's like, you know, when you practice, practice layups the wrong way a hundred times, well, eventually you're going to think that's how you perform a layup. And, you know, that's how you like lay up a basketball, but it's, it's concerted effort in practicing the right way. And a lot of people don't know what good looks like. No one, there's a lot of people out there who have never experienced a good manager. So how can we expect them to be good managers if they've never experienced it themselves? Yeah, I think it was the Harvard Business Review, but it may have been Gallup or Pew or, or one of those other research bodies. I don't even know now, a decade ago, had this research where they found that a lot of the people that were going to their training program were in their 30s. But a lot of them started as managers 10 years before, which means they've been a manager for 10 years with no training. Mm. And so I do think there's a systemic problem of we're not giving leadership proper training. However, I do feel like we're starting to almost move to another topic. And we also definitely have a full episode. I can't believe it's already over. It's been a fantastic conversation with you, Dom. So I do want to wrap this up and I do wait, want to wait, give you... I, I, have, I have one more thing that I want to add to the mix before we wrap it up, because I All think right. it's really apropos that we're actually having this episode today mm -hmm. um, in that the website had the wrong SMTP for our email. And we've talked about the idea of like, and I'm thinking about this, Dom, as we're talking about the episode, like Brad and I want to reward our listeners. We want to provide them with feedback. We want them to know that if you email us, right, we're going to talk about you on air. So we get more emails and, and all of that. And now that I've fixed the SMTP issue, I've realized that the reason why we weren't getting mail was not because nobody was interested. It's just because... I gaffed on it, right? So I do want to call out, um, and I think it's really apropos that we had this call to a woman named Emily Tobias, who sent us an email this week, and it was the first one that came through, and I was really, really excited for it. She gave us some really cool feedback. Um, she's a big fan of the episode. She really liked the one where we were talking about Chris Lee's uh, instructional design. You know, w one of the things that we did on our feedback forum is we broke it down like like a retro. So what went well, what didn't go so well, and things that we should do differently. And so uh, what works well is, uh, she says, great discussions. We should do an episode on IC Agile. And I agree. I think that maybe I'm, I'm friends with Damon Poole. I'm going to see if I can get him 
to come on because he's an IC Agile trainer. And uh, she said that we touched on it briefly in the certification episode, which mm-hmm. was one of my favorite episodes as well. Uh, she says what doesn't work out so well, and I think this is going to be interesting for you, Brad, is that she says she needs a trick to remember who Brad is and who Drew is. Maybe we need to do a video episode. So this is Drew's voice. And Brad, this is? This is my voice. That's Brad's yeah. voice. <laughs> um, and maybe we'll do in a, a video episode we were thinking about potentially releasing the um the bonus episode where we did our season retro at the end of last year so yeah emily thank you for providing us with feedback and we're going to read feedback every single week so dom what what other ideas do you have for us to bake in some behavioral design to reinforce the idea that we want this kind of feedback i I thought that was actually really interesting feedback and i was I was on mute, but I was kind of laughing because I've been listening to uh, this podcast for years now called My Favorite Murder with uh, Georgia Hardstark and, and Karen Kilgariff. And come to find out, um, I didn't know who was talking for almost 18 hours worth of episodes. I, I thought Karen was the, the lower voice and Georgia was the higher voice. Like I totally empathize with that feedback. But uh, <laughs> anyways, I'm getting off track. Yeah, uh, I would say before your sign off, remind people. Uh, do, do the Bob Barker, uh, before you sign off, uh, but, uh, maybe just ask people for, uh, for feedback. <laughs> All right, Brad, sorry for interrupting. I'll pass it back to you. Yeah. No, I, I think we have a survey feature, at least in Spotify, we could set up too, that I've been meaning to play with for like polls. I wonder if that we can plug the form into that as well. Yeah. Let's look into it. We're learning as we go. We're trying new things all the time, right? We have audiograms now. So people are starting to see those. I wonder if there's even an opportunity to do not an audiogram, but email read as its own little clip. You know, there's different ways we could, we could do things. Still want to do our AI episode at some point, but yeah. So to wrap it up, Dom, thank you so much for joining me. You did join us kind of last minute last week. I was like, Hey, you, you available next week. So I appreciate that. And uh, do you have anything going on? I know you tend to present a lot. I know you have some stuff coming up. Why don't you share with everyone how they can engage with you? Uh, yeah, yeah. Outside of the standard LinkedIn, find me on LinkedIn. I've been really passionate and um, been going on my second cohort now of teaching a course on how to facilitate productive meetings. Been really spending a lot of time doing that. Been really rewarding. The first cohort was like so awesome. I had so much fun doing it. Um, but it's agnostic. It's not really geared towards anyone agility or product or therefore or otherwise. It's more just, hey, if you feel like your meetings are uh, unproductive and you're not getting to your work until 2.30 in the afternoon because all you're doing is sitting in meetings all day every day, they can probably be productive. So let's let's learn how to facilitate productive meetings. But that's my passion project right now. It's uh, I'm having a lot of fun. But on the personal side, this is my last day before I'm out of the country for two weeks. I'm uh, taking a awesome trip with some friends overseas. So I'm glad we got a chance to do this now. Otherwise it would have been uh, well after my return back from, from Europe. So that's pretty much what what I have on my plate these days. Perfect timing. Yeah. No, I was was so glad we could do it, uh, do it this week. So appreciate it. Awesome. This was a great topic. I I really enjoyed, I soaked up a lot of what you said and uh, I, I really appreciate that. Awesome. Yeah. No, thanks for being gracious hosts, Drew, Brad. I had a, had a lot of fun and uh, kudos to you two for uh, hosting an awesome podcast and making me feel comfortable and uh, open for sharing. Great. Thank you.
and stay tuned on Slack for a, uh, a, a message from me saying, I like your shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. I'm looking forward to it. Looking forward to it. Awesome. Thanks again, guys. Awesome. Thank you. Agile for Agilist.com. Give us your feedback. We want to hear it.